please be advised, this podcast contains graphic audio and themes that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Wednesday night going into Thursday morning, the 23rd to the 24th, I was staying in uh, the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. I get a call on my cell phone from my wife, and she said, baby, the building is shaking. I think we're having an earthquake. The last time that Mike Stratton spoke to his wife, Cassie, he was on a business trip back in June 2021. Cassie called him at about 1.20 a.m. from their bedroom in Unit 410, Champlain Tower South. And it was so severe, it had woken her up. She said that she saw a sinkhole forming and that was coming towards the building and that there was water in it. And I said, gee, that doesn't sound right, an earthquake there. She goes, let me go see. So she left the bedroom, walked down the hall, went into the living room. Mike and Cassie's condo overlooked the pool deck. We now know that the deck collapsed at about 1.15. So when Cassie called Mike at 1.20, the sinkhole she saw was the deck after it had fallen into the garage. Cassie actually joked that it was a good thing their car happened to be in the shop. She was glad that she'd taken our car into the dealership to get repaired because the basement garage was going to be flooded from the water that was coming into it from the sinkhole right across from us coming from there towards the building. Then she says, the building is starting to shake again. She screamed, and that was it. The call could not have been more than three minutes, and it was more likely closer to two minutes. The line went dead. Mike tried to call Cassie back. Then he called Surfside Police. Surfside Police, tell me to help you. Yes, sir. My name is Mike Stratton. Mike Stratton? Yes. I live at 8777 Collins. Yes, sir. I'm in Washington, D.C. on business. Okay. I just got an emergency call from my wife who is in our condo at the in Surfside at 8777. Correct. Um, yeah, we, we have, we, there's something going on with the building. There, I, I, I don't, haven't seen it myself, but a partial building collapsed from what I understand. Um, yes, we have my, my wife, my wife called me screaming, uh, said, saying that the building was collapsing and then the phone went dead. Okay. What floor is she on? She's on the fourth floor. Fourth floor? Okay. It, this literally happened like maybe five minutes ago. Yes, she just called me screaming and saying the building was collapsing around her. Okay. Um, I, I Like I said, I, I wasn't, I don't, I'm not sure what it looks like, so. What should I do, sir? Um, give me your number and, and, uh, yes. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I, what I can do about calling you back, um, with some information. I'm Paul Beban, and in this episode of Collapse, Disaster in Surfside, we're going to keep unraveling the mystery of how exactly the crumbling pool deck led to the collapse of an entire wing of the Champlain Tower South Complex, and how the tragic call we just heard between Mike and Cassie Stratton fits into the timeline of the disaster, the crucial seven-minute sequence we started piecing together in our last episode. 
And we'll also talk about how the building was designed and built and discuss whether it was doomed from the moment it went up 40 years ago. And like the Near family and others we met in our last episode, we have a stunning story of a last-second escape that sheds light on exactly what happened during the building's final moments. That night, 64-year-old Ileana Monteagudo was at home asleep in Unit 611, five floors directly above the Near family in Unit 111, two stories up and one unit closer to the ocean than the Strattons in 410. All three units were in the long wing of the L-shaped building, the wing that collapsed. Someone woke me up. I didn't wake up on my own. I feel like I opened my eyes. I feel like it was a supernatural force because it wasn't natural. Natural would have been not to have felt anything and to have died like everyone else. Ileana had only been living in this apartment for about six months. She moved in in December 2020. Just a few minutes before Cassie Stratton woke up and called her husband, Ileana woke up too. But it wasn't the shaking that roused her. A higher force woke me up and led me into the living room because I felt the noises in the apartment and then when it led me into the living room, I thought the sliding door that faced the water, the balcony door, was open. And indeed it was. I tried to close it and I couldn't. And it was that obviously the building had moved and the door had come off the rails. She heard noises, the sound of the building shifting and sounds from the garage below. The noises were like the building creaking. I heard in the distance the car alarms in the garage were going off. And I said, I wonder what happened. The noises started getting louder. She turned to see a crack crawl down her wall, she says, like a black snake. I felt a big rumble, and when I looked to my right, I saw that there was a crack from the ceiling down to the floor, along the wall, and that crack, as it grew, separated the wall in two. That's when the voice in my head told me, you have to go, because the building is going to fall. She put on her sandals, grabbed her purse off the table, and rushed out the door. One floor up from Ileana Monteagudo in Unit 711, the building's shaking activated a motion-sensitive ring home security camera. It started recording a grainy black-and-white video, which lasts about 13 seconds. Here it is. It looks like it's snowing or hailing inside the room. That sound is bits and pieces, chunks of the ceiling falling everywhere, bouncing around in front of the camera. The camera must have been sitting on a table or mounted somewhere near the sliding glass doors to the balcony, but the lens was pointed back into the room and the video was uploading straight to the cloud. The apartment's empty. There's a couch, chairs, and some boxes, and one of them falls over when you hear that loud snapping sound. Then the room sort of leans to the left toward Cassie Stratton's apartment. And for a second, you hear a groan 
and then it's over. Here it is again. When the video goes black, that's when Cassie Stratton's phone call cuts off. But remember, one floor directly below the ring camera, while it was recording that 13 seconds, Ileana Monteagudo was already running from her apartment. The Miami Herald's lead investigative reporter, Sarah Blasky, tells us what happened next. She makes a really interesting choice that saves her life that day. Instead of turning right, there was a stairway 15 feet from her door in the hallway to the right. She turned left and made a 100-foot journey over to a different staircase. She ran down the hallway, hung a left again, and rounded the corner of the L shape over to the elevator shaft. And when she did that, she crossed an invisible fault line in that building that she didn't know existed. Nobody knew existed up to this point. And she went for the stairs next to the elevator. She makes it down two floors to the fourth floor when she hears the roar of half of the tower going down. She is 40 feet from where Cassie Stratton stood on the other side of that fault line on the phone with her husband when her side of the tower fell. One woman lived and one woman died. I didn't know where the staircase was, so I started running towards the elevator. And sure enough, as I suspected, when I got to the elevator, there was the staircase. So I opened the door and I started running down. I started on the sixth floor, and when I got to the fourth, I felt the explosion of the building falling down. It turns out that that elevator shaft was basically this poor connection that engineers pointed out after the fact, right, when they were looking at all of these plans, they said these floors weren't well connected to this elevator shaft, this reinforced wall. The entire tower on one side fell. And although they couldn't have known it at the time, all of that traced back 40 years to the original design, the way these things were connected, the way the engineers and architects and contractors built this structure. Nobody knew. Ileana Monteagudo didn't know when she hung a left that she was going to cross this line. She didn't know it was there. She says she was guided by a higher power. And frankly, it's hard not to see it that way. It's hard not to see something like this you know, a tragedy like this where there's no explanation, where people couldn't have known. It's it's hard not to understand why why she sees it that way. And I think Sarah Neer and her family see it that way too. The few people that did make it really all kind of share this feeling that they that they were protected by some higher power. It is human nature, of course, to look for an explanation of the inexplicable. Whatever force was guiding her, Ileana Monteagudo kept running down the stairs after the building fell just a few feet away from her. Hani Nier, her brother Gabe, and their mother Sarah Nier had run out the front door of their first floor apartment and into the street after the pool deck collapsed 
at 1.15. Here's Hani and Sarah. We just exited the building and suddenly a big boom. It was a big clouds. I didn't see anything. I couldn't breathe. It was really, I said, that's it. It's the end of the world. So we're all just like running across the street. And we like the second we got like across Collins, we hear like a huge boom. And it's just like we just see like particles of like white dust just like following us. And we were like, whoa, that's probably like that was it was like three parts to like the collapse. I think that was like the last collapse. And that was like, whoa. I told my kids we need to stay together and just run. Two others had also escaped, Argentinian soap opera stars Nicolas Vasquez and Jimena Cardi, who had come up the elevator from the parking garage just as the pool deck fell and run into the street with the nears. Another two or three minutes passed in which we didn't understand what was going on or what we were living through. We were in a state of shock. And then I told the others around us, who were very nervous, that we should cross the street. And right then, we heard a tremendous crash. It's impossible to describe the sound because what we heard was something we'd never heard before in our lives. It was like from a movie, a type of earthquake, an attack, I don't know. What I've seen in the pictures, we don't see much, but there are images that show the building. In that moment, we didn't realize what was happening. We had a cloud of dust so big that between the sound and the dust, we couldn't see each other. We were side by side and we couldn't see each other. We ran desperately and Hime ran straight into a tree really hard. Back in the lobby, security guard Shamoka Furman had stayed behind after the deck collapsed, calling 911 and trying to call people in the building. Sarah Blasky. Things start collapsing around her. That's how she describes it. The entire lobby starts collapsing, but it it doesn't hit her. The the mail room behind her collapses off to the side of the elevators. The stuff to her side collapses. Everything is down. The front doors are blocked by debris. She can't get out that way. She can't follow the path that the Nears took or that Jimena Cardi and Nicolas Vasquez took. She has to find a different way. And so what she ends up doing is she ends up going for the side door that would normally go out onto the pool deck. And she opens the door onto the pool deck and sees nothing. She sees a pile of debris. She says, it looks like I'm in hell. There's sparking live wires around her. But when she looks left, she sees Ileana Monteagulo coming out of the stairwell. And Ileana, you know, this is the first time she's seen anything either. There's this pile of pancaked floors that used to be a tower right next to them. And Ileana thinks she can't make it. She thinks she can't get out. There's there's too much rubble. It's dangerous. And so Shimoka Furman, the guard, helps Ileana. The two women made their way across the debris pile. When I got out there, there was water up to my ankles and live wires that I was afraid were going to electrocute me. Right then, I saw the security guard coming and screaming and jumping from the lobby of the building, saying that there was an earthquake, an earthquake. I said, no, it was not an earthquake. The building fell. And she said, follow me, follow me. At the same time, at about 1.25 a.m., Three minutes after the building has gone down, 
the first Surfside police officer arrives on the scene. We first heard him at the very beginning of episode one, choking on dust, making his way up the driveway, past the corner of the lobby where Sarah Neer stood at the windows and looked out over the collapsed pool deck and valet parking area just 10 minutes before. You can hear the car alarms as he gets closer to the fallen wing of the building. The wind hits him as he comes around a corner and sees the collapse zone for the first time. He shines his flashlight down on Shimoka Furman and Ileana Monteagudo as they scramble through the rubble, calling for help. Hello? Where are you? Are you okay? Are you okay? Is anybody down there injured? Sarah Blasky, again, on why Shimoka Furman's experience was so crucial to unraveling not just what happened, but the order in which it happened, which is the key to understanding a progressive collapse like this one. And within a couple of minutes, they do make it out. Both of them survived. And and Shimoka Furman, out on the street, goes up to one of these officers and says, I have to tell you, you know, she starts describing what happens. What collapsed? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, okay. Just hang out here and find us here. Do you see anybody down there with injuries? I didn't see anybody with injuries. Okay. It seemed like... What do you mean what collapsed? The garage, the pool. But if they don't get out... I just got hit. Okay, fire rescue's here right now. I got you. Relax, I got you. I just got hit. I literally smoked in the area and they only have the garage and the pool. The second one, this right here. These are just collapsing right now. Hey, this is not safe. This is collapsing. I just was telling you. We're going to talk with Out on the street, in front of the section of the building that was still standing, Shimoka Furman told another emergency responder her chilling first-hand account of survival. So I hear a boom, boom, but I'm thinking it's the elevator. No beeps or nothing goes off. Another boom, boom, come. That's when, that's when um, I hear a boom. So that's when I immediately, the lady, when I, went, when I heard that, the lady heard that she ran outside and said, the, 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 everything collapsed. I say, get out, get out. I called 911. She tells the entire series of events through the final part, and she says, I don't even know how I made it out alive. I didn't even think we had earthquakes here. And that is when Shimoka Furman first set the groundwork for the Herald's analysis, those videos where she repeatedly comes up to officers on the scene and says, there were three big bangs. One's a boom, boom. One's a throom. And like the next one is the tower going down. That is the basis of Dr. Lehman's forensic analysis that was published by the Miami Herald. We heard a lot from Professor Dawn Lehman in our last episode. She's an expert in the concrete and steel systems used in buildings like Champlain Tower South. Professor Lehman used supercomputers to model the collapse, and she came to the conclusion that it likely began when corroded steel rebar near the southern edge of the pool deck snapped sending the pool deck plunging into the parking garage. Seven minutes later, 
81 apartments came crashing down. Now, federal investigators with the National Institute of Standards and Technology are well into their own inquiry, which could take as long as two years to identify what exactly went wrong. But the Herald's analysis, led by Professor Lehman, does point to several weak links in the building's unique L-shaped design. The location of the gym on the first floor was one of them. It was in the section that collapsed, just down the hall from the lobby, just past the elevators, in the corner of the L, overlooking the pool deck. Sarah Blasky. So, this concept of the fault line, these connections between the one side of the tower and this elevator wall, this reinforced wall being weak, is important because at that corner, four floors down from Cassie Stratton where she stood, is a gym. And that might not seem like a big deal to you and me, but engineers plan for gyms because there's a lot of extra weight on the floor. All of those weight machines have hundreds of pounds of extra weight. They load these parts of the building very heavily. And so when you have these weak connections and you have a pool deck collapse and you have a gym at that corner where there are a lot of weight machines and a lot of extra force, that connection at that corner between the wall that is already under-reinforced, that already doesn't have enough steel, you can kind of see why it would be extra strained. And picture that corner starting to fall. Picture that corner starting to give way. Those pieces of rebar inside, almost like a bobby pin that you've played with too much. And suddenly it's very malleable, right? And it's not holding anything together. That's what Dr. Lehman's computer model said would have started to happen at that corner of the gym. Professor Don Lehman's model shows that when the pool deck fell, one side of the gym started to sag, putting tremendous strain on that critical connection between the two wings of the building. The drooping gym may have severed that connection. You can think of it almost as unzipping the two wings of the building from the bottom up. Once that slab falls away, you start having columns that are unsupported one way to the next, and you have that sway side to side. You, you start having that feeling in some of the floors of the tower. And it also explains why Cassie Stratton's stack of apartments, 410, you know, 310, 210, they went first. They are the apartments directly on top of the gym where Dr. Lehman's model shows that this connection would have started to fail. And they are directly against that fault line where at every level, that lack of connection is replicated all the way up the building. Cassie Stratton's floor of her apartment was not well connected to that that core wall behind the elevator either. And so it just kind of goes down and it pulls the rest of the structure with it down through the middle. That's what happened in that moment, according to Dr. Lehman's analysis. And of course, there's still room for new information to come to light. There's still a possibility that 
you know, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, the federal investigators, the engineers that are on this for the government will discover something else. And and this won't be the ultimate sequence of events. But, but for right now, this computer model and the eyewitness testimony all join together and they, they make sense. This is a plausible theory. Is it definitely what happened? No, it's too soon to say that, but it is a plausible theory. A plausible theory for the failure itself, but one that raises more questions about the building's design and construction. Was it flawed from the start, even doomed to fail? I think what it comes down to is that, for whatever reason, all across the structure, on the columns under the pool deck, on the columns that are supporting the part of the structure that stayed standing and on the part that fell down, it appears that the contractors left out rebar that was called for in the plans, that these connections between the slab and the column were not secured with the amount of rebar that was planned by the engineer. That could have just been because they couldn't place it, or it could have been cost-saving. We don't know. Um, These people, this was 40 years ago, these people are deceased. We can't ask them. Sarah Blasky is right. The original team who built Champlain Tower South are long gone. But in future episodes, we're going to look into who they were and find out what corners might have been cut and why. And, as Sarah Blasky pointed out, The federal investigation is still ongoing. Those findings are months away, at least. The town of Surfside is also conducting its own private investigation. But even as these multiple investigations play out, a complex and bitter legal battle has been underway since day one of the disaster. I would like the court to consider the emotional and physical toll (coughs) these events have taken on me. Since that night, I have awakened in the middle of the night screaming. The surreal abyss that confronted us when we opened our front door to face the ocean. And the feeling of water around my ankles in the garage, paralyzing me with the fear of being electrocuted. They are united in grief, but divided over money and blame. On one side, there are the survivors who lost everything. Many escaped with literally nothing more than the clothes on their backs, their phones in their hands, maybe a passport jammed into a pocket or a purse grabbed from a table as they escaped. On the other side are the families of the dead. And even within these two groups, there is a wide range of opinion about who deserves how much, if anything, and who bears ultimate responsibility. The division that cuts deepest is this one. A small group of relatives of the dead say that the surviving condo owners deserve nothing, nothing, and should actually be held liable for damages because they failed to keep the building safe. The one thing all parties have agreed upon from the outset is that they want more money made available. The question is, where would it come from? We'll get into the exact numbers and how it's being divided up in our next episode. But even if the charged emotional calculus of the value of property versus the value of human life could somehow be worked out, the judge and lawyers on all sides have conceded that there will never be enough to satisfy everyone. 
One of the big problems in this case, and one of the reasons that it's a limited funds case, in the judge's words, in other words, nobody's going to get what they feel they deserve, uh, is that the original developer, builder, architect, contractors, they're all dead. And obviously, there were many design flaws and construction shortcuts. And so that's a whole group of defendants that you can't sue. The Herald's Linda Robertson has reported deeply on the people who lived and died in Champlain Towers South. Now she is following the survivors and the relatives of the lost through the legal fallout. It really all comes down to human nature. And inevitably, there was going to be a dispute over who gets what and how they're going to divide the pie. From the get-go, you know, people who were looking at it more clinically from an engineering standpoint were asking themselves, what caused the building to fall? And then, of course, the lawyers jumped into the fray. That's Jay Weaver. He's the Miami Herald's longtime federal courts reporter, and he's been tracking the sprawling and complex court case. And when I say they jumped into the fray, they did it practically on day one. The first lawsuit was filed on the day of the aftermath of the night when the building fell. At one o'clock in the morning, 1.30 in the morning, the building falls. And by that afternoon on June 24th, the first lawsuit was filed. And there was a great sensitivity about this early on because nobody wanted to look like they were, you know, kind of jumping to the front of the line to be first to try to recover monies at the expense of these people who were still being rescued and who were dead. But then it became quite apparent that this was going to be a huge negligence case with ramifications for the condo association, for the original developers going back 40 years, with the contractors, with the engineers who were working on it as consultants during the recertification of the building, to even the town of Surfside for perhaps being negligent in its supervision of the project and in the recertification and not showing enough urgency in repairing the building in a timely way that might have avoided this calamity and this tragedy. Linda Robertson. And so part of the mystery here is who's at fault and who's going to pay? Because you have 98 lives lost and those lives are each worth something. And you have an incredible property loss, and that's worth something. And so this whole process has been figuring out who's accountable and this search for who's negligent, who's to blame, and who's going to pay for these losses. Coming up... How that search for who's going to pay is pitting neighbor against neighbor, and how the families and survivors are speaking out in open court for the first time. I know how lucky I am to have survived this horrible tragedy, but we lost more than property. I don't need my watch, my jewelry, or my possessions. I, I really just want my life back. Ladies and gentlemen, I know 
that there are a lot of hard feelings in this case. We cannot equate losing an apartment and furnishings to losing a life. My heart is shattered into a million pieces and beyond repair. All that and more next time on Collapse, Disaster in Surfside. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside is produced by Treefort Media, the Miami Herald, and the McClatchy Company. Visit miamiherald.com forward slash surfside dash podcast, that's all lowercase, to learn more about our investigation and to read articles mentioned in today's episode. And if you can, please rate the episode as well, as it'll help others find our podcast. Our hearts and our admiration go out to our guests who have so bravely shared their stories so that we may bring to light the many stories of all the people impacted by this tragedy. We also want to thank the experts who have joined us for sharing their insights. Special thanks to the team at WLRN in Miami, as well as CBS 4 News in Miami, for sharing supplementary materials to help us tell this story. Collapse, Disaster, and Surfside was executive produced by Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort Media, Monica Richardson and Rick Hirsch for the Miami Herald. I'm your host, Paul Bieben. The series was written and produced by Eric Salat and me, Paul Bieben, for Treefort Media. Editing by Maxwell Carney and Abigail Sullivan. Mixed by Maxwell Carney. Treefort Head of Audio is Tom Monahan. Line produced by Oscar Guido. English translations by Anne Liu and Lindsay Whistler. With additional production assistance by Jared Brom, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Lindsay Whistler. For the Miami Herald, Monica Richardson serves as executive editor. Managing editor is Rick Hirsch. Senior Vice President of News, Kristen Roberts. Senior Vice President of Advertising, Tony Berg. McClatchy Managing Editor, Cynthia DuBose. Audience Development Editor, Adrian Rui. Miami Investigative Editor, Casey Frank. Miami Herald Senior Editor, Dave Wilson. Miami Herald Information Services, Monica Leal. Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media and the Miami Herald. Sound recording copyright 2021 by Treefort Media.